Hi everybody, welcome to the Ryan and Brian Show. I'm Ryan. And I'm Brian. And this is a podcast about outside-the-box thinking and education. I want to pick up and say thanks to everyone who listened to our episode 2 featuring Howell Superintendent Aaron McGregor. And welcome back. And today we have a special guest. That's right. Our first teacher guest on the podcast. It's great to have you. This is Marcy Adams. She's with us today. She's a Spanish teacher here at Howell High School and at the freshman campus. She splits her time between the two buildings. Uh, she's been a teacher here in the district for 14 years, started back in 2003, and she has taught Spanish 1, 2, and 3 throughout her career. So welcome, Marcy. Oh, Great to have you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So thanks for coming to the luxurious Ryan and Brian Recording Studio. Yes, yes. I feel honored. <laughs> Great to have you here. So Marcy, you and I are, we are, uh, we teach together. We, yes. we We are colleagues that work very closely with each other, so that's just kind of a, a note to all the listeners here that... A lot of these questions might be may sound self-serving, but it's just because of all the teamwork that yeah. we've done together. Brian's so, my spirit animal. Well, you're my spirit <laughs> animal. I've said those exact words in my class before. So wonderful, excellent. So let's talk about that. We've recently shifted our pedagogy and our world language classrooms here at the, at least the ten twelve building um, to more <coughs> comprehensible input based. Uh, processes. Can you want to talk about that process, how it started, what it sparked it, and what it's like now? Uh, you know, it's been so exciting. It has brought back the passion in my teaching. Um, I love to see the kids light up, and they know that they're understanding a different language, and um, it's just been uh, an amazing journey. I am, like, super excited. I think we talked a couple years ago about wanting to make a shift um, and not really realizing that there were so many new ideas out there and new methods for teaching. And I think kind of like we're like, we've, you know, learned that we're on the same page. And, and I think from there, we just like, you know, started bouncing ideas off of each other. And, um, and you and I have always liked to um, research new things and try to find the, the latest and greatest. So... Um, I love the idea of teaching with comprehensible input because um, in the past it seems like learning a language has been more of like an elitist thing where only the advanced students do it, um, only if you're you know, college bound. And teaching with comprehensible input has really made it so that all kids can learn and feel successful learning a language. So. So, and it's made it so much more fun. For, so for those who are listening that, that don't know what comprehensible input means, and we both know what that means. Yeah. It's the cornerstone of our teaching. Now, what, what is that? Um, that is where we are teaching with, it could be everyday ideas, concepts, movies, books, articles. Um, and then we are teaching it in Spanish in the target language. We try to keep it about 90% in the Spanish and um, but yet we want it to be comprehensible to the students so they understand what they're listening to and when they hear it so much and see it and they start to visualize the concepts then they can start to produce it and speak it and write it and um, like we just have like meaningful conversations about everyday things in Spanish just at their level Hmm. and we speak and it's nice and slow and um, and yet they feel very successful and we went from writing charts um, and focusing on grammar to focusing on meaning and ideas and content. And, you know, we got rid of textbooks. We use novels to teach and articles and movies. Um, it is um, so much more advanced than I ever thought it would be. We went from Spanish 1, you know, our goal at the end of the year was writing 50 words. Um, and now 
for midterms, kids were writing between 50 and 270 words in 25 really? minutes in Spanish. And it was beautiful. Like, it was very natural. So... In good Spanish too. Yeah. It's it's not jumble garble. It no, is, it is it's like quality. connected. It's fluid. So yeah, it's huge. The kids don't realize that this is happening. They're like Spanish is easy, and that's what we want. But it is um, really taking it to a whole new level. So this is the first year Brian and I have Spanish one because mm -hmm. as we started, we did a pilot with Spanish two and three, mm -hmm. and a little bit of four, right? Yep. And then um, this year we now have one, two, and three, and um, four in AP. AP, is, yeah, it's, it's across the whole. Yeah, so this gamut. is the first year we're um, going to be able to see the effects of teaching with comprehensible input from the early stages, where we don't have interference of grammar getting in the way. Just you know, pr production, no grammar charts, things like that. When you when you're talking about the um, comprehensible input, right? Mm -hmm. And you mentioned some measurable gains, like the 50 words, what you were expecting to the, the 150, yeah. 175. What's something that might be not, might not be as measurable? Maybe the student engagement, the ownership, or I'm just wondering what differences. And this is for both you, Brian uh -huh. and Mercy. Like, what differences do you see in the students um, compared to years past with this program? Um. Like, honestly, it just happened in our midterm when I, like, started to tear up when I saw, like, oh, my gosh, you just wrote 250 words. Um, and then, you know, to hear the kids talking about it and their mm. excitement and they're just feeling really proud. Um, I, I never got those things before with teaching traditionally. Um, also is um, being able to talk about real Topics, you know, we're not talking about fake things and imaginary. Right now, my Spanish twos are reading a novel about um, overcoming discrimination in the Dominican Republic. Like, um, they're really seeing like the language in real use, real context, instead of like, okay, we're gonna do this now. Practice ordering in Spanish, you know, or it's, you know, we're having real discussions. I love that they're more engaged because it's real. Mm. And I think the other part, for, and you definitely would agree with this, I know, it's a lot less stressful for the kids because they're learning it in the natural way. Mm -hmm. And so the just the overall climate of the classroom, I think, is just more positive. Right. I know that we focus a lot on proficiency, right. not grading, like yeah. you got this, we tell the students, all the time, there's no such thing as a mistake right. in grammar. It's and for a lot of people, they're like, journey. what does that even mean? It just, all a mistake is, is just a representation of the mental construct or their language mm -hmm. in the head at that moment in time. So taking away that stress of school, I think, <clears throat> and focusing on what can you do, what can not you what do, can't right? you do, yeah. that's a huge shift yeah. in, in our classroom. And I, I think, I don't know. I, like I think I, we should be. We should all be like that. I'm like, gonna say, yeah. what can you do, not what can't you do? It's huge. They they love the idea that they are being graded on all the things they do right instead of all the things they make mistakes on. Mm. Um, and because honestly, nowhere on our proficiency levels that are posted on our wall, because we all say, you know, where do you fall on this on this level? They they pretty much monitor themselves. They're usually harder on themselves than we are, but. Um, nowhere on there does it talk about making mistakes. It's all about what you can do. And that alleviates that pressure um, of having to be perfect to speak. 
That's why I say just whatever comes in your mind, let it come out. Nobody knows you're making a mistake. Um, and, you know, it's about getting your ideas across instead of getting your grammar correct. Mm-hmm. And it's totally changed. The kids will say, Spanish is so easy. It's so easy. And learning a language, we know, is not easy. I mean, I didn't think it was easy growing up learning a traditional method. Mm-hmm. Um, but this feels easy. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. I love it. Which is huge for their affective filter because, as we know, their affective filter is a major, can be a major barrier when Absolutely. acquiring the second language. Absolutely. I mean, that's what I did my thesis on in college was... Um, the anxiety that you get from performance in a foreign language classroom because you're constantly performing and how the anxiety gets in the way of learning. Um, So it is something that I struggled with as a learner, so I became very passionate about. So this really connected with me. It's interesting. Yeah. And So I'm sitting over here looking through it of the lens of like a general educator, and I know... The YouTube, Ryan and Marcy, have the specific world language lens you're viewing it through, and a couple of things stuck out to me. We're thinking about how does these huge growths in mindset and, and accomplishments in your classes relate to the, the general ed population? And mm-hmm. a couple of things stuck out. Stress of school, mm-hmm. um, learning in a natural way, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking all the way from kindergarten to 12th grade, whether it's math or, or English, science, I don't think we learn in a natural way. No. There's not a thematic approach. Everything's separated into silos. Mm-hmm. Um, once you get through this chapter, you're moving on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing a little bit different now, and now just with some project-based learning that's kind of going through. But I just think those are discussions that we really need to have. Uh, how do we remove the stress of school by learning in a natural way? I think one begets the other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd love to to talk more about that? Um, For me, um, I love the idea of it being proficiency level based, um, that the kids know where they are um, because they're able to evaluate themselves. Um, I also, um, I I am not a big person who loves homework. I feel like um, when you're with me, that is the most important time because I'm the one who's giving you the input and we know that's how you learn Spanish. Um, I feel like homework is causing a lot of stress in student burnout um, and I, I really um, I want the kids to feel that when we are in class our time is super important that's why I need everybody participating um, and you know homework I find is usually kids um, Googling answers for, for translations. And then um, a lot of, it's just copying. A lot mm-hmm. of kids copy, share through social media. And I am not about doing something that's not meaningful. And that's why, you know, we don't, we don't really do homework. We, we do uh, stuff in class and just try to make class the most important time for learning. Can I come so. to your class homework? Okay, you talk about burnout among students. Oh. Let's talk about burnout among parents with homework. Parents. Right? Soccer practice. Yep. Dinner. Clean up. Absolutely. Oh, Mom, Dad, I forgot my homework. Right. Really? So, you know, I, I'm literally standing on my soapbox right now for those of you that you know are listening. Homework's got to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talk about the learning in a natural way and the stress of school. 
how awkward is it that we say as an uh, elementary school, we need to give you homework to prepare you for middle school. Middle mm-hmm. school students need homework to prepare for high school. Exactly. High school students need homework to prepare for college. Oh, when you graduate, stop working at home. You're a workaholic. Spend right. time with your family. Exactly. What are we doing? Right. You know, that we have that seven hours of face-to-face time. Right. It's, and, it's really contradicting because we tell our kids we want them to be involved. We want them to um, have friends and socialize and learn those skills. Those are just as important as the skills they're learning in school. Um, and yet we don't really give them time to do those things, um, which, you know, that creates stress in, in the family as well. And, you know, every everybody's stressed. I'm stressed right now talking about I know. it. You know? I, yeah. As a parent and... Um, I see the effects it has, and it kills me when you hear your kids, who you love learning, and you hear your kids say, I hate school, and I am hate this homework, and, you know, it's just, you know, it, it, it really has to break the concept, the ideas that homework doesn't make you rigorous. I agree. And for those out there that are saying, hey, Ryan said no homework ever, it's a terrible <laughs> thing, it's not what I'm saying exactly. I'm sure in your classes, there are students that do homework. They do work at home yeah. because they're driven to do it. Right. Right? As a teacher, when I was in the classroom, I didn't assign homework, but we would do projects where if kids wanted to do work at home, go for it. I'm happy to give them the resources, right? Mm-hmm. If it occurs in a natural way. Right. And I think there's a socioeconomic piece to homework as well. Absolutely. Because kids are coming from various socioeconomic uh, you know, situations. When a kid goes home, they might have, especially in high school, they might have to go work to support Mm -hmm. the family, or their parents might work a second shift, and that might not even be a socioeconomic thing, it's just a social thing. Absolutely. Um, And so, one of the things, if I ever give homework, which is, again, rare, um, except for an AP, let's give the caveat (laughs) with that, because it's a different different animal, but um, one thing I, I heard, I read over the summer I thought was interesting, is it's something that engages the parents in it as well. So maybe it's like, for example, I know we did a homework thing in kindergarten. was a a heritage project. Mm -hmm. So it got us all together as a family. We were able to talk about our heritage with Aiden, Mm -hmm. my son, and and we created, you know, a a product with it. And so even if it's a five-minute engagement with a parent, if they're home, or an adult, or a sibling, something that can maybe make a a strong connection to home, and it's meaningful to the kids, those to me have to be the two qualities to homework. If not, don't do it, because a lot of times it has to be meaningful to them, not to the teacher, because we're not the learners. We know our stuff, hopefully. Absolutely, (laughs) yep. Marcy, you got to come back on the show when we do our hour-long podcast on homework. Right? Oh yes, <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty passionate about that. I've um, no, me too. I'm serious. Like, yeah, uh, like if you, you know, if your classroom, if you have a packet in your classroom, you know, um, I've just seen these kids like they're just dreading, and I'm like, oh, even the sound of a packet, mm-hmm. like what's for homework? A packet. Well, what are you doing? I don't know. We just have to pack it. <laughs> like, oh, you know. Um, doing word searches where you find the word, there's no translation, there's no like circumlocution where you have to define the word and look for the, it's just, here's the word and you find the word. Like, it's just not meaningful. Like It's a chore. It's a chore, yeah. Especially if somebody is dyslexic or some of these are really challenging for kids to do, so. I'm gonna shift gears <coughs> a little bit. I wanna ask, um, ask you about the role that literacy plays in your classroom. 
I am curious to see how our scores change this year for our reading levels because of having all the decoding that's going on in in Spanish class. I know it's trickling over into their um, reading levels for their English classes as well. Um, we are using uh, novels that are at their level, um, but it's more about the concepts and ideas. It gives us something to talk about. So. Absolutely, and it, and it shifts us away from a focus on form and grammar mm -hmm. to more of the focus on the message. It gives us, because a, one of the things that's important to language learning is context. Mm -hmm. You're learning language in a in certain context, context yeah. and our context is always the classroom. Right. So the novel gives us, we can't, we can't pretend we're a restaurant. We can't pretend we're a grocery store right. and have kids out and do that because Absolutely. we're not. Right. It was, you know, it unless we take them feel to silly. a local yeah. restaurant, we can we can sort of you know recreate right. that. But so the novel almost gives us a new world in which I think the kids can enter into, right. and and then learn the language in the context right. of that of that world of that story. Yeah. And, you know, um, sometimes the kids, you know, I'll hear, oh, all we do is read, all we do is read. I'm like, oh, I know, all you're doing is reading a foreign language and having discussions about it in Spanish. Like, it's not just reading. Like, there is so much that's happening under the hood, and they just, they don't um, always comprehend how amazing it is until the very end, and they're like, I just read a book in Spanish. Mm. Like, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Like, I haven't read a book in English in, in years. So, like, they feel successful. So, and the, and the feeling part too. It, learning a second language the natural way feels so much different than learning in their six other classes. Right. You can learn to play a musical piece and you can see something immediately happen right, right there or you can learn facts or how to do a process or right. something. That's yes. a completely different part of the brain than what we're engaging. Oh yeah, yeah. And there's so like, wait, we're not gonna have to do charts. We're not gonna do boxes and... That, and when that, she says charts, she means verb charts. Verb if you charts, ever took a second language, you know what those are. Yes. <laughs> they, I love them because I'm a grammar nerd, but they are pretty much pure evil. Yeah. They couldn't, we found that all <laughs> they could do is make charts, but they couldn't actually apply the words that were in those charts. Um, so this gets them thinking literally outside of the box. So. Nice. Yeah. Um, I know in, in our discussion ahead of time, we'll kind of get into some more specifics mm -hmm. here of, of what you're doing in the classroom practice. Um, I know something you just did recently because it was interrupting my class. Sorry. <laughs> yes, and my class comes it. with a disclaimer. Anybody yeah. that is around a Spanish classroom, we just say sorry in advance. Yeah. We are noisy people. Yeah, I did. just on my way down here, I had a teacher say, what was the banging on the wall? And I had to explain to them the word chunk team game that we yes. were playing. But um, one of the things you did recently with one of the novels was a movie trailer project. Why don't you talk about that? Because this is, I think, a great way of really thinking outside the box. I love this project. Um, it's messy. I'm going to tell you, when you do these things, it is not like kids sitting quietly in rows. It is interactive. They are moving. And um, this, to me, is where the magic happens. They just take their ideas, and they get so excited and passionate about it. And, they're, and I see them laughing. And they're laughing and talking about their story and how they're going to portray the novel. So they, we just finished um, La Llorona de Mazatlan, uh, which is about a legend in Mexico um, about a, the weeping woman who haunts the riverbanks. And they needed to create a movie trailer um, using iMovie. Um, it had to last like a minute to three minutes long um, that, uh, about the novel. And all their takes on it 
I mean, I was absolutely amazed. We had uh, La Llorona, the action movie. We had La Llorona with um, the Breakfast Club twist. Um, absolutely hilarious. And I'm sitting back, and it was like one of those surreal moments where you're just, you're sitting back, and I'm just observing the kids and, and just feeling so happy that they are like, laughing and totally engaged and they can't wait to show what they made and then I hear them say that was the best activity we've ever done that was the most fun I've ever had in Spanish class and again it's one of those things it's a lot of work for us as a teacher because we don't we don't know where it's going to go we don't know are they going to be on task or are they going to use it as an opportunity to goof off and for the most part like they were on task and they, um, they just exceeded my expectations. Truly enjoyed it. So, yeah, it was, um, it was definitely a fun experience. They're already planning the next one. So we get to do that for the next one, right? So I'm like, sure, whatever you guys want to do. When they're asking to do the project again. Uh, yeah, yeah okay. exactly. Yeah. These are, these are high schoolers. Too. Exactly. So, okay, well, yeah. just to be clear. Yeah, <laughs> yep. asking to do a project again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we both uh, took a big jump yep. this year with our classroom mm -hmm. setup. I'll let you talk about that. All right. So, um, yeah, this is totally uh, non-traditional. It is definitely thinking outside of the box when we say that we have a deskless classroom. Now, of course, I have a desk in there. Um, we Spanish teachers have lots of stuff and props. Um, and the kids do have tables that are pushed against the wall, but the chairs go in front of them. It's, it's literally to put their backpacks mm -hmm. or to have a, maybe if they needed a working station. Um, it has taken the center off of the desks and the leaning on it and their book bags and playing on their phones behind it. And it has put all the focus on communication. And that's what our goal is in a foreign language classroom. Um, it's like stadium seating, and every, the attention is all on us and each other talking, and um, it really has eliminated distractions with cell phones because you can't hide them. You know, their desks, you know, would glow before underneath on their laps, and there's no hiding it anymore, and it really, um, they, they don't like it because it's different at first, but... Um, you know, we know what's best for them and it's, you know, trying to keep them engaged. So it's really helped. It's helped with cell phone use. And I you're think. literally taking a barrier yeah. away. Mm -hmm. I mean, a table acts as a barrier. Yeah. If you've ever sat across from someone at yeah. a job interview, right. that's, a, that's a big yeah. wall between you and Absolutely. the person. And you are right with those kids. Right. And if you're walking around, and, and we are the chief inputters, right. you know, I say inputters and chief, right. in our classroom. And, and that's one thing that I think sometimes it's, it's hard for maybe administration to understand. We've had those discussions mm -hmm. with them to say, yeah, you might hear me talking a lot, but you're also going to be hearing me ask a lot of questions right. and engaging the students. So, yeah, you might hear a lot of my voice, especially with the younger levels when right. they can't produce yet. Right. Um, so I think that the classroom setup allows us to really engage with those yeah. students. Right. And even though the, we're the chief inputters, um, it's not teacher-centered. It's still student-centered because right. um, just like when we read a, a book to our children in right. bed at night, is that parent-centered right. or is that child-centered? Right. It's still obviously child-centered. Well, we know through learning languages they have to hear it and see it enough before they can produce it. So we have to be the one that's giving them the information. 
So um, I do think it definitely removes those barriers because it is like you are right there. I mean, it's kind of, they feel a little vulnerable in the beginning because there isn't that place to hide behind. But after a while, they just get used to it. And, you know, it's like a, a little family, a little community. So I, I think it makes a more warm, inviting atmosphere. Mm. So. Marcy, where'd the time go? I, have I one, know. I have one more question. Yeah. Okay, not to put you under the gun, but 60 seconds or less. Mm. Could you just ex explain 20 years from now, how do you hope that K-12 education looks? Or what do you hope that it looks mm. like? That is a great question. Okay, so I still hope we look like a school. Um, with all the direction going in technology, I want to make sure that we still are people-centered. Um, I want to make sure that that compassion um, and the relationship factor is still is more important um, in, instead of isolating with computers and technology. So I want to make sure that, you know, even though online learning is an experience, it's not the best way to learn a language um, or maybe to learn in general. It's an experience. And I, I hope that as we continue to um, evolve as educators that it, it doesn't become so centered around technology that we, we lose the people part of it. Because my favorite part of teaching is the relationships. And you can't get that from a computer screen. And I think now more than ever, that's what we need with you know, um, the violence we're seeing in the media and, and in schools, um, we need that compassion piece and that um, relationships. So to me, I hope we're still a school and I hope we're still have all that teacher input um, because those are the ones who are igniting passion in kids. Um, we, don't, we can't get that from a screen. So I hope that we continue to build on and focus on the importance of relationships um, and also maybe some, some growth and development in how we um, grade our students um, with like proficiencies. Maybe we can get into, you know, skills and proficiencies as opposed to, you know, chapters and test grades. Excellent. Well, we are out of time, Marcy. Man, that flew they by. I have fine. so much to you, say. You might end up being our first repeat guest because I think right. we have a handful of uh, questions <laughs> here. If people want to get a hold of you, what's your Twitter? Um, it is Senora underscore Adams. Excellent. We'll put a link to that on our, oh, sweet. our thank uh, you. website, the Ryan, Ryan and .com. Um Thank you so very much for being here. This was an awesome conversation. I love this. Thanks, guys, for having me. Thank you, Marcy Adams. And stick around, folks. We'll be right back with some podcast recommendations after this. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around with us. Thanks to once again to Marcy Adams for an amazing interview. Thanks, Marcy, for joining us. Uh, now it's time for our regular show features. We'll start off with our normal podcast recommendations. Ryan, what are you listening to? So I've got a good one for you. Uh, you know I have a long drive to work, and it's been working out lately, especially with all the snow and the extra long drive to work. Uh, the Tim Ferriss Show. I love the Tim Ferriss Show. I know I keep saying this about all these podcasts, but this is such good stuff. Not so much for Tim Ferriss, the guy that hosts the show. You know, he's all right, but the people he interviews and gets on the show is fantastic. So what Tim Ferriss does is he gets some really interesting, really well-known people um, from all kinds of life, all kinds of careers. And he deconstructs kind of their thinking and gets into their, their tools, their tactics, and maybe they have routines, their mindset, and breaks it down. And it is so interesting to hear 
what makes these really interesting people tick and how they think and then how you can apply that to your own life, um, how you can apply that to your teaching, your thinking, your family. I take so much from this podcast. And, okay, are you listening? Because I want you to write this down. There's two episodes that I love and I actually re-listen to them. Um, I think the first one I, I want people to listen to, it's, I think it's episode number two, and it goes way back to like, I don't know, three years ago maybe. Um, Tim Ferriss interviews Josh Waitzkin, and Josh is the subject of the film Searching for Bobby Fischer, uh, the chess movie. Um, Josh has an amazing life, and he has so much to say. He's not in chess anymore. He's um, like mentoring people in, in high levels and He's kind of like a coach in that way, and he's also a world champion in jiu-jitsu now. So he's this really crazy, interesting guy. It's a must-listen. You're going to pull so much from that episode. Then there's another episode recently. I think it was in November of last year, and the name is Tim O'Reilly. And Tim Ferriss does a great job interviewing Tim O'Reilly, and there's so many great nuggets that come from that podcast. You need to listen to those two shows. Tim Ferriss Show, you can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. How about you, Brian? What do you got? Well, um, if you listened to the last episode, and if you haven't, go back and do so. Um, Ryan surprised me with a Seinfeld quiz, a Who Said That Seinfeld quiz, and uh, and I kind of teased this last time. So the podcast it has nothing to do with education. You really can't take anything out of it, really, because it talks about a show literally about nothing and it's called Signcast mm-hmm. and Signcast is two guys who actually met at Michigan State University who have gone back and are look watching rewatching every episode of Seinfeld and talking about it it's the kind of the traditional podcast of watch a show talk about the show mm-hmm. and they talk about the excruciating minutia that is in every every episode that's a quote by Elaine if you don't know and um, it's a great way, if you love the show Seinfeld, it's a great way to go back, learn all the little tidbits, information, behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, one of the episodes I remember the most was when they talked about the episode where we, we meet Elaine's dad. It's the only episode. And uh, they never asked the actor to come back. I never knew this because you never saw him again after this episode. They never asked the actor to come back because at some point during the recording of the show... He uh, threatened, I think it was Jerry, with a knife. Really? He got mad about something. He was an old school actor from like, started in the 40s, and he got mad about something, and he threatened Jerry with a knife. I don't remember the whole story. You could go back and listen to the podcast about it. But it's just these little interesting stories like, well, I never knew that. No wonder we never saw Eileen's dad once again. So, um, Signcast, um, we got the link up to it on our show. Um, it's on Facebook, Twitter, and of course, any of your podcast apps. Ryan, uh, now it's time for EdTech Talk with Ryan. Go ahead and take that away. Thanks, Brian. So this week, um, I want to talk about uh, a, a tool. It's really, really easy to use. Anybody out there that's shown YouTube videos, if you're a teacher, to your students, and you get the YouTube video up, and sure enough, what happens that a commercial pops up, right? Or you get an advertisement on the bottom of the video, or maybe over on the right-hand side of your video, <laughs> it has the up next with the suggested videos. You have no idea what's going to pop up, right? It's literally playing YouTube roulette, right? You don't know what's going to happen. Um, I've had teachers dive in front of the screens and you know unplug things real quickly. There's a website that's called viewpure.com. 
So viewpure.com, you go there, you copy and paste in the address of a YouTube video into ViewPure. There's a little button that says Purify, and like magic, it takes out all of the junk that you don't want to see. Your video appears in the middle of the screen and white space around it. No up next, um, none of the advertisements that pop up. It's that simple and that easy to use. ViewPure even has a, a button that you can drag up to your bookmarks bar called the Purify button, I think. And that way, if you're on YouTube and you have a video you like, you press that Purify button, it does it automatically for you. You don't have to go to viewpure.com. So check it out in the show notes, viewpure.com. It's going to change the way you show YouTube videos. That's always good because I sh we watch music videos sometimes, school-appropriate music videos in my Spanish class, but oftentimes the Up Next videos, um, yeah, they're questionable. And, you know, I've got sophomores and juniors seniors who are making comments because of course they notice and they got to make a comment about it so yeah. um, that would be a <laughs> if it's a moments i would say that yeah everyone's had some moments <laughs> yeah. but give it a try you'll love it it's so simple and it's so clean it's really really easy to use excellent brian now it's your turn i'm gonna do a segment called brian's reads so brian what do you have for us this week Actually, in our show notes, you'll be able to find the link to this article, and it's just a newspaper article, and I think you'll be able to find more about it. But it's a topic that has been on my mind recently. Uh, we talk a lot in education about learning styles. I'm a visual learner. I'm a kinesthetic mm -hmm. learner. And that is something that's been in education for a while. Um, and I, I was listening to another podcast that I listened to about second language acquisition, and somebody mentioned Tea with BBP. And uh, they mentioned that learning styles actually don't exist. Hmm. And I thought, wait, what? Because that's what we've, as educators, it's, it's common knowledge, I, I thought. You know, it's, uh, it's things that we've always lived with. We've always thought, well, I'm going to design a lesson. This one will be good for the kinesthetic learner. This one will be good for the visual audio learner. We've, we've always done that in our lesson design. And it turns out that... Um, this article that I linked to is, is from uh, The Guardian, and the headline is Teachers much, Must Ditch Neuromyth of Learning Styles, Say Scientists. And there's a lot of research out there that t using learning styles as a way to design your lessons doesn't really change the outcomes that a student will get from it. So even if I heard a student say to me the other day, oh, I'm a visual learner, and I didn't say it, but I thought in the back of my head, no, you're not. You've been trained to think that, you've been taught to think that, but it turns out those learning styles don't actually exist. And this is, um, it's a letter that was written to, I believe, The Guardian, and from eminent academics from worlds of neuroscience, education, and psychology. And I know one of the names on there was Steven Pinker, and I don't know if you are familiar with Steven Pinker's work, but he's an evolutionary psychologist, I think, from Harvard. Um, I've read a few of his books. Uh, and if Steven Pinker says it's true, I'm going to believe it because he's, he's pretty one of the eminent uh, evolutionary psychologists out there um, and talks a lot about the, the stuff of thought, how language works, and, and just a lot of different aspects of, our, of who we are as humans. So... Um, I'm going to challenge all the, anybody out there that's listening, especially teachers, students, um, even parents who think that, that learning styles exist. Take a look at that article and really think critically about 
this idea of learning styles because it turns out the science is showing, the research is showing, it's really not a thing. So Brian, that's interesting to hear that uh, the article is, is stating research supports that there's no uh, individual learning styles. What then does the article say about how uh, a teacher should plan their lesson if you're not saying this portion of the lesson is for the visual learners, this portion's for kinesthetic? What should we do then? How should we adapt? It, the article really doesn't necessarily address that directly. Um, it's more of just talking about it being a fad and, and a neuromyth, as, which I think is kind of a cool term. Um, but I think that if we use other ideas from other areas of research to inform our, our instruction, that's going to be more powerful, such as, as I've mentioned before on the podcast, the power of reading. Um, there's pounds and pounds of research out there that supports that, free voluntary reading, reading pleasure reading and whatnot. Um, and other areas of neuroscience that can, that can help inform our practice. But the article doesn't necessarily dr directly address that. It just says that there's limited, if very little, research that actually supports now the idea of learning styles. Well, thank you so much. Uh, at this time, speaking of pleasure reading, I did some pleasure reading uh, getting ready for this next segment. We're going to play a round of, we did this last week, who said that? Seinfeld version, special uh, segment of the show where I, Ryan, am going to ask Brian um, some Seinfeld-related trivia. I'm going to give him one line and from one episode, right? Brian is going to have to tell us which Seinfeld character said that line. He gets one point for that, and then Brian's going to get another point if he cor correctly tells us which episode it was. So I did some pleasure reading trying to find some uh, lines to stump you with. They are hard to find online because it seems really, really easy. He's going to nail it or way too difficult. You're not going to get it. You were three for three last week. You got all three of them. Which makes me nervous now. Yeah, well, you know. uh, well, we'll see how you do. I'm, I'm going to start you off easy and we'll get you warmed up. And then I got a couple more of them. Right, for Hopefully the record, we'll my you. phone is away. My iPad is away. I've closed everything. Turned it upside down. I'm not using any, any resources. All right. No resources, but his own brain. Here we go, Ryan. Brian. <laughs> Question number one. Here's the line. 100% cotton dockers. If they're not dockers, they're just pants. <laughs> that is Kramer. Yep. It's Kramer for sure. Again, I'm not going to be able to know the episode name, but I can tell you that Jer Jerry was dating a girl who liked cotton dockers. Jerry thought that the commercial, now if, you're, if you grew up in the 90s or were alive in the 90s, you probably remember the Dockers commercials, and Jerry's girlfriend said, oh, I, ha I like that commercial, even though Jerry despised the commercial. And she's like, I have friends like that. And Jerry said, nobody has friends like that. And uh, Kramer mentioned <laughs> this conversation to the girlfriend, and she got upset because she was talking to Kramer. Jerry was talking to Kramer about this disagreement <laughs> that they had. Yeah, um, that's one of the many pants references with Kramer, so... You nailed it. It was Kramer, and you didn't get the specific episode, but because you gave a very detailed description, I'll give you a point for that. Yes. It was, the episode was called The Phone Message. It was season two, episode four. Okay. Oh, that's it. Season two. That's a... That's Back a in deep, the day. That's, that's a deep cut. Yeah, what's a deep dive? Yeah, I'm more of a, like, you know, season six, seven, eight guy, but... Oh, good to know. Maybe yeah. I'll stump you on one of these but, next ones, or but maybe I'm I in, But remember, on, on the podcast... Signcast, I'm in season two, season three, so that stuff is now fresh back. Oh, that was right in your wheelhouse. So, yeah, so, you know, I'm kind of coming at you from all sides. All right, I'm going <laughs> to step up the level, maybe. Oh, maybe. All right, here, all right we go. here we go. Number two, I meet a lot of women in this jacket. They're attracted to it. I meet a lot of women in okay. this jacket. Yeah. They're attracted to it. That is Jerry. 
I believe, if I'm thinking of the right episode, if it's an... Hey, boy. I'm thinking it's from uh, the episode I mentioned earlier. Is Jerry had a suede jacket, and it got ruined by the snow. Is this the one we're talking about? No, no. but that might be. I'm going to have to do some research. Okay. I'm going to have to have the... You might not have said it in that episode. Boy. I'm going to have to have the staff dig into that one, see if there's another line. <laughs> That's a jacket episode. Um, I'm trying to think of what other jacket it could be. It could be Kramer, he, because he had a jacket that he uh, that he wore, that he mentioned in that. But that to me sounds like it's not knowing the episode. To be fair, so, you know, I won't get that bonus point. It sounds like a George quote to me. Sounds like a George. It sounds like a George quote to me. It sounds like something he would say. But gosh, oh Ryan. I'm embarrassed right now. I'm bringing great shame to my Seinfeld fans out there. So you're going to go say George, final answer? Oh, final answer. I'm going to say Kramer, final answer. Wow. All right. Kramer, he's locking it in, final answer. Locking it in. Meet a lot of women in this jacket. They're attracted to it. It is Kramer. So you get a point for that. Yes. And then the episode (laughs) is uh, The Cafe, season three, episode seven. Episode seven. Mm-hmm. That is, I haven't got that far in Signcast, yep. and it's been a while since I've seen that. But I remember Kramer having a jacket that he met women with. So that is digging. There's some cobwebs I had to move out of the way for that. One. Okay, well I got half one there. So right. out of four possible points so far, you got three. All right, so All right. I'm, I'm passing. I've got to see. So okay, far. last one. Here we go. Sometimes the road less traveled is less traveled for a reason. Wow. That is a, a lot of dead air here right now. Um, boy, oh boy. You know, I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you straight up. I, I, I'm I don't know. I but sounds like to me, I'm going to say that is, it's either George or Jerry. I can tell by the cadence of it. It's either George or Jerry. And give me the quote one more time, if you don't mind. Sometimes the road less traveled is less traveled for a reason. Language of origin. You want me to read it as Kramer? Etymology. Or should I read it as Elaine? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I'm going to say George. You're going to say George? I'm going to lock it in. Final answer, George. Final answer. It was Jerry. Jerry, it oh, was, the 50-50 shower. I know. The, it was the baby shower was the episode season two, Again, episode ten. The season two, the baby shower. Now, mm-hmm. I can tell you all about that episode. Yeah? Uh, yeah, that's the one where uh, Elaine hosts... A baby shower in Jerry's apartment. Jerry's trying to get illegal cable from Kramer's Russian friend. There's a very violent scene in it where there. It was actually one of the only times it ever happened in Seinfeld. Yeah. Was where um, Jerry was having like this dream about stealing cable, and the FBI comes in, and then they ended up shooting him. And Kramer's holding Jerry, going, "Jerry, Jerry." And it's just all a flashback. It's one of the only times that they actually got violent on the show like that. Really. On the early episodes, I yeah. So wow, I guess maybe if I could, if I had been able to get to the context of it, it would have helped. But I'm so gonna, can I get like a? I'm half? gonna give you a bonus point for for bringing up the only Seinfeld episode that features violence. Good to know. There was an ep- another episode that they actually never filmed. Yes. Which was going to be about Elaine getting a gun, but none of the cast felt comfortable doing that topic, so they never recorded the episode. They I actually script. saw that in my research. Did you? Yeah. All right. Well, there so, you go. So I'm going to give you a point for that. That gives you 
Four points out of six. That's passing. All right, all right. That's a six out of six you got last week. Yeah, man. I tell you, those early episodes, they're they weren't to me. A lot of there's a lot. There's like two camps with Seinfeld. There's the people who think the early episodes with Larry David, that's pure Seinfeld, and the later stuff was, you know, not the same. I'm in the other camp that says I like the later episodes primarily because I was more like late high school, college in those last few seasons. So that's what I remember is that screwball comedy part, but. So those early seasons, I we don't really watch a lot of those, but so you got me. Well done. Well, maybe I'll mix it up a little more next time. Maybe we'll go. I've given you my kryptonite now, so you know. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it though. Hey, for those early episodes, I'll take a sixty-seven percent. Well, thanks for playing. You, um, you listeners out there, can check out um, our show notes on RyanAndBrianShow.com. That's Brian with an I, and see quick little video clips from those episodes and whatever research we have on. So thanks for playing, Brian. Well, yeah, thanks for stumping me. My wife said you're going to have to get up a lot earlier in the day to get me, and, and you sure you certainly did that. So well done. Hats off to you. So I think that's going to do it for this episode of the Ryan and Brian Show. Thanks for listening. Once again, thanks to Marcy Adams uh, for her wonderful interview today. Ryan, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they do that? You can find me on Twitter at RyanHorn0076. And I am on Twitter at ProfeRiordan, P-R-O-F-E-R-I-O-R-D-A-N. Again, head over to the RyanAndBrianShow.com for all of our show notes if you want to take a look at any of those Seinfeld clips that stumped me earlier on. And uh, once again, thanks for listening, and have a great day.